Well, we're in um, Nehemiah chapter 8, if you're uh, following or if you're not, haven't been here for a bit. We're still in Nehemiah and we'll be in Nehemiah for a while. But chapter 8 is one of the, um, one of the most important, well, maybe I shouldn't quite put it that way. Nehemiah 8 is an important chapter in the Bible, uh, and particularly in terms of the history of Israel. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utter a sentence here that's really an important sentence, and by the time class is over today, I hope you'll understand that I have adequately defended this sentence. <laughs> Chapter 8 indicates that the people of Judah, and now remember, they're the ones who have come back to the land and are repopulating Judah, have rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem, it's now secure, and so on. They're no longer people only of the law. They are people of the book. And that is a very, very important proposition for you to understand. By being people of the book, what I mean by that is they now will commit themselves to reading and studying and internalizing the book. And this change from people of the law to people of the book is what is going to define the next 400 years of their history. Because we're about, we're about to enter that intertestamental period, which is 400 years of silence, from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew. And it is during that period of time that Judaism fundamentally changes. Because, as you know, they come back from the exile, and not all the Jews come back. The book of Esther is an account of the Jews that remain in Persia, and the vast majority remain in Persia. They do not come back to the land. That's why up until Ayatollah Khomeini, the second largest concentration of Jews in the Middle East was Iran. After Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, beginning of his reign, they, they moved and a lot of other things happened. But anyway, uh, that's irrelevant to all I was saying. But this becomes important, and one of the key leaders in terms of the groups that emerge in that intertestamental period or the Hasidim or what become known as the Pharisees. Pharisees are born in that intertestamental period and they are people devoted to the book. But by the time of Jesus, that had deteriorated, unfortunately, into a legalistic form of righteousness. And so that, that's the tragedy of what had happened. Of course, that's what Jesus is, is dealing with so much in, in his relationship with the leaders of Judaism. He had the harshest words possible for the Pharisees. Now, what I just said, does that make sense? I mean, this is a very important section because um, they, are not, they are not coming back to the land and restoring the Davidic monarchy. There is no Davidic monarchy. They are a people under occupation. They are people being ruled by a foreign power. At the point of Nehemiah, they're ruled by Persia. But then Persia will be conquered by the Greeks, and it will be ruled by Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great died, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Then Rome, and then, then the Muslims, and then the Ottoman Turks, and then Britain. And finally, in 1948, they become an independent nation. But again, all of that, it's just important. That flow of, of Jewish history is really important to understand. Although they have reinstituted the sacrificial system, there's no Davidic monarchy and the core of who they are, the core of their identity, is the sacrificial system in the book. 
And then, now just to continue to follow my thinking here, when the temple's destroyed in AD 70 by Rome, then what's their identity? It's the book, but what does that mean? Because there's no priesthood, no temple, no sacrifices, and that, that's part of the crisis of Judaism that each actually continues today. So, again, that's beyond what we're studying. But this block of material we're studying right now is quite wonderful because you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 people hearing Ezra read from the Old Testament, read the Torah, read the, uh, from the first five books of the Old Testament. And what I've done up here is uh, I've tried to get you to understand that this is almost the way it still works in your life, in your heart. You intellectually engage with the Bible. You want to understand it. You want to understand it's being said. You sometimes will need someone to help you understand it. But you, you, you hear it. You intellectually engage. Your mind is engaged. With that also is often your emotions, your heart. I mean, you're being stirred by what you're reading. And then out of those, the interaction, let's do it the way we sometimes talk about it, the interaction of the mind and the heart comes obedience. And so you have this in this, this remarkable revival in, in Jewish history, this remarkable revival where the people are, are in their land. It's, a, it's much, much smaller. It's very tiny, actually. They're in Yehu, Judah. They, they have secured Jerusalem, the walls built, the temple sacrifices were instituted. But, but now they hear God's word, and they're engaged with it. They understand it. And their emotion, you're going to see in a moment, they're weeping and crying, and, and, and just they're just outpouring in their emotions. We have not been obedient to the Lord. And there's crying. And then finally there is that commitment to obedience. And you can put a lot of ways a renewal of their covenant commitment to God and things like that. But it's really remarkable. And this still goes on today. I don't mean these circumstances, but for you and me. You do not put your mind on the shelf when you go to church or you go to a Bible study. You don't put your mind on the shelf. Your mind engages with the Word of God. You want to understand the Word of God. And then you're, you're, there is emotions. There is the, in your heart, and you, sometimes there is tears. Sometimes there are the emotional response. And then there's that deep commitment, renewing of obedience to the Lord. And so that... That's a wonderful snapshot in chapter 8. It's one of, it's one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Old Testament because you really see how the Word of God is to work in people's lives. You intellectually engage. Your emotions are often a part of that. And then, God willing, there is obedience, a new act of obedience. I saw a couple of hands. I haven't said anything yet. What do you... I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I just wanted to testify to that book again that you recommended, uh, send me another. Oh yes, Wendell's. Yeah. Did you get that? And yeah. He likened same as you did. He likened it to a revival. Mm -hmm. The revival for like kind of like that. That's right. You know. That's right. And that we get discernment from it. And, That's know, right. And, and understand it better when it's read like they read it and 
in the revivals. And stuff. That's right. In the early 19th century, there was a very famous revivalist in the United States by the name of Finney, and he defined, he did a bunch of lectures on revival. He defined revival as a new act of obedience to the Lord Jesus. But that's, I mean, that's what revival is. Our walk with the Lord is a renewed act of obedience. You're reading God's word, you see some areas or things or that you have not responded to. Now you're responding to it. So that's that I, I like Swindoll's point there. This is like a revival. I shouldn't say like a revival. It is a revival. It really is. Or a revival is like that. That's me, yeah. Boy, this guy is sharp today. Good night. Man. Of course, that's, that's what I should expect from Woody. He always is surprising me. Chapter 8, verse 1. Are you ready? And I put the date up there if you're really interested in these. And we can date this pretty precisely. It's October the 8th, 445 B.C. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the Watcher Gate. If you are interested in this, I gave you a map of what Jerusalem looks like as the walls rebuilt. The Water Gate is on the east side of the wall. It's down in the southeast side. And I've been in that area many times. It is a vast open space. It still is today. That's a vast open space. And so we go on, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, that the Lord, and please note Lord there is in capitals, that's Yahweh, had commanded Israel. Now, when the text says the book of the law of Moses we're not exactly sure what that can mean, because it can mean a lot of things. It could mean the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Or it could mean just Deuteronomy. Or it could mean just Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, because we just know, maybe it's all five books. So in one sense, it, it doesn't matter but because of their response to specific things, at least what they're responding to are the things in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. The law of God. The law that is in what we call the Levitical law and all that stuff. Because they're going to respond to one of those passages and say, we haven't been doing this. Let's do it. So um, so I, I, maybe I confuse you. I didn't mean to confuse you. But when you read the book of the law of Moses... It isn't specific, so we're not quite sure how much of the first five books did they read, or did they read all five? <clears throat> so Ezra the priest, now notice he's called the priest there, because he is a priest, but he's also called a prophet, so he has multiple roles, brought the, before the, law, brought the law before the assembly. Now notice, notice who's attending, women, men, and all who could understand what they heard. Why do you think the text describes it that way? Whom is that referring to? Persians. Pardon me? Persians. No, I don't, I don't think it's referring to another ethnic group. Men and women. Younger. Younger. But it says all those who could understand what they heard. Were babies there? But probably not. We're infants who are three there. Probably not. But we're not sure what the age cutoff is. But a child can understand things at a fairly early age. Again, I, I don't know what the age cutoff would have been. Six, seven, eight? I don't know. 
but something like that. So the, the text is just telling us this isn't just men. It's men and women, their wives, etc., and children. We used to talk about this as those over the age of accountability. And again, that you, you can't be real dogmatic when that is because it varies with children. But age of accountability, where they have a sense of right and wrong, they have a sense of, of moral judgment. So again, I think that's all it's saying. Did I confuse you there? So there are young people here at this. And on the first day of the seventh month, again, that's why we can be specific with October the 8th, 445 B.C. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men, women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, men, from early morning till midday, that's six hours. In the language of the day used to describe the time segments of a day, that's six hours. Now, would you stand and listen to the word of God being read for six hours? Be honest with me. Don't answer the question. Because that betrays your lack of holiness. No, I am, that's terrible. I don't mean that. But, I mean, I, I think that's remarkable, don't you? Yes. But you see, many of them had never heard the law read. That, that's because they're hearing something. They're hearing the word of God being read to them. And so the text tells us something else in verse 4. And Ezra, the scribe, stood, now there he's called a scribe, stood on a wooden platform. So they built this platform. How high is he? I have no idea. But he's on a wooden platform, obviously for very pragmatic reasons. So people could hear him and people could see him. Because when you're up, your voice projects better. If you're higher, you know, well, you know what I mean. So anyway, so that's just telling us for that purpose. Continuing. Now, I'm not going to read all these Jewish names, but there's a total of 13 individuals. Some on his right hand, some on his left. And they're listed there. They're all Jewish names. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. All the people stood. All the people stood. Sometimes, and not I don't do this often, but sometimes when I'm in church and, and leading a service or whatever, and it's time to read the Word of God, I ask people to stand. Where does that come from? From this passage right here. It's just, I mean, there's nothing magical or mystical about it, but it is honoring. This is God's word being read. Amen. And it's a way to honor that. This is God's word. Again, there's nothing, it's not a requirement. It's not something you must do. But it shows, it shows the, the, the demeanor and the, 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 the tenor and kind of the characteristic of this very significant setting. And as I, we estimate, we just don't know. But we have the census, which we looked at briefly last week. So the total number of people, if you're including young children, somewhere over whatever the age might have been of accountability, you're talking about somewhere between thirty to 50,000 people are there. So this is a significant event in the post-exilic life of Israel, post-exilic, after the exile, they've come back, post-exilic life of Israel. Very significant event. Verse 6, 
And Ezra blessed the Lord. Again, note that's Yahweh. The great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. That's a Hebrew word, Amen, Amen. It, it, it's a powerful word. It's actually a name of God, a title of God. But you'll notice when it says Ezra blessed the Lord, usually an interchangeable word with blessed is praised the Lord. So it's just a blessing, a praise, an exaltation of, of the Lord. And the people lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. That doesn't mean they're prostrate on the ground necessarily, but their faces to the ground. So they're this and then they're that. I mean, it's like these are all gestures that, you know, probably in the various traditions that are represented in a group this size, the various expressions of worship in church. Some people lift their hands and pray during worship. Some people, you know, bow their heads and pray. I mean, it's just all kinds of visible ways of expressing your awe and worship and reverence for the Lord. And so, I mean, this is this is an extraordinary thing to imagine. Thousands of people standing in the southeast southeast corner of of, of the walled city of Jerusalem. Ezra's on a fairly presumably a fairly high platform. And you have these thousands of people <laughs> lifting their hands in praise, bowing their heads in reverence. I mean, it's just it's an incredible thing to see. There had been nothing like this before 586 B.C., since 586 B.C. They didn't do this in exile. They didn't do this in Babylon. So they never heard the word, but they had a reverence towards it. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't know if I want to go as far to say they never heard the word, but Woody, there would have been people here that this would have been the first time in their life that they had heard the word of God read. But they had heard about it. Probably. Yeah, and I mean, some of them would, I and mean, it just depends on who they are, but you're talking about the, the sizable portion, if not almost everyone, who had come back in the waves of exiles, with beginning with, with the, the very first one, Shamanizer, and and, and so on, Jeskazar, and then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. So these are all the exiles that have come back. Everything's done. Everything's been reinstituted. Now they're focusing on the Word of God. So I think there would have been some there that this would have been the first time they've heard the Word read. For some, it had been years since they heard the Word of God read. Because it was not I mean, you know this, but it's not as readily available as you are. You have probably several copies of the Bible, and you have one with you now. Plus, we can access it in technology and all that stuff. They didn't have any of that. So the, the typical Jew at this time or any time in their history, their access to the Word of God was they heard it read. They heard it read to them. And so th that's why, for many, this may have been the first time some of what is being read to them, if not many of them, the first time ever they heard the word of God read to them. They knew its content. They knew what was required of them, but they're hearing the word of God being read. There's a difference. You yeah, know what I mean? They had the reverence. Absolutely. Of Ezra and, and what little they heard, heard about the word and things like that. That's why they were bowing down. Well, yes, I, I think so. I mean, it's there's a similarity to this. You got to go way back to Second Chronicles 34, when Josiah is king of Judah, and he orders 
the temple to be uh, remodeled and cleansed. It hadn't, because his father was a horrible king, it hadn't been used. And they find the law. They find the law in the temple. The, the high priest's name is Shaphan. And he brings it to Je- Josiah. And, and he, he, Josiah says, read it to him. And he starts reading it to him. And Josiah tears his robe off. And he orders all the leaders of, of Israel to come to Jerusalem. And you know, not every person, but the leaders, clan leaders, political leaders, and so on. And he orders them to listen to the word of God being. And that's another revival. The great revival of Judah in King Josiah. Now that's before the destruction of Jerusalem. That's the same thing. But it also shows you that what happens in the down cycles of any people that are supposed to be following the Lord, they're not reading the word of God. And Josiah's uh, high priest finds it in the temple, and they start reading it again. And all of a sudden, the same thing happens. They hear the word, they start weeping, they start crying. Some of them tear their clothes, and they put ashes on their head. I mean, because they're saying, we have not heard this for a whole generation. And there's a renewal of obedience, a renewal of the covenant. Woe be it to the church that does not read the word of God. I just made a very dogmatic statement. (laughs) But I believe that with all my heart. Well, be it to the church that doesn't focus on the word of God. What, what are you focusing on? So, I mean, that, that, that's why you see something like this. You see something that the Lord wants to see all the time. Read my word. Respond to my word. Obey my word. Because it is the word of God. And if you don't believe that, then you won't read it. Right. Their state of mind, uh, realizing that what they doing I mean there's a lot of emotion going on here but they are they are responding reverentially and 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 quite wonderfully to the word of God being read and therefore to God himself and today today if we, if we bow in, in prayer we're actually submitting that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Jeff, can you describe the total uh, the Jewish the Jewish people as a whole, wherever they might be outside of this area of the thirty thousand, and um, just a little bit about perhaps what you might know about their spirituality and the thirty that were there might have been there for geographical reasons or whatever, but can you kind of address the entire nation now that, that did the exile, uh, exodus, and where they are now, that, like, the number of- By now you mean 445 B.C., yeah. when this is occurring. Yeah. Well, um, can I use another I just want to make sure there's a word that you always ought to have in your vocabulary when you think of the Jewish people, and that word is diaspora. That means spreading out. Because after 722 B.C. and after 586 B.C., 722 is when the northern kingdom was destroyed, 586 is when the southern kingdom was destroyed, Israel Judah. Both of these involve relocating Jewish people throughout the Mediterranean world. So at this time, um, Fred, because of the diaspora, the spreading out, 
Jews are all over the Mediterranean world. The largest concentration of Jews in the Mediterranean world would have been in Persia. And the book of Esther is an account of the Jews who did not go back after the exile. It started in 539 BC. But they were in other parts of the Eastern Mediterranean too. And then as other things start to happen with Alexander the Great coming and then Rome coming, they spread out even, even farther. They're just all over the place. So to answer your question is a little difficult <laughs> because it depends on a lot of different factors and it depends on the time sequence. But at this point in 445 BC, which is where chapter 8 is occurring, um, the most probably some of the most faithful Jews would have been those now back in the land. Because the temple sacrifice systems they instituted, those in Persia, they're not doing anything. Now, did they have access to the Mosaic writings in Persia? Yes, they did. And there, uh, uh, well, I was going to explain a bunch of things. That doesn't matter. So, yes, there is. And um, yet, at the same time, when you read the book of Esther, and you read about Mordecai, and you read about Esther, they're not, they don't give you the appearance of being very faithful Jews. They really don't. There's a lot going on in the book of Esther that's beside anything we're talking about right now. So um, that's one of the reasons, I'm going to say something else, that's one of the reasons why the synagogue system develops. The synagogue system develops because of the diaspora. Jews who are away from Jerusalem, where do they worship? They, they can't sacrifice. There's no high priest. So the synagogue, synagogue is a teaching place. You go there to hear the law read and explain to you. And so synagogues are all over the place. And by the, when Jesus shows up 400, 500 years later, 450 years later, the synagogue system is already there. And you know that Jesus, he's up in Nazareth, where does he go? Luke 4, he sits down and reads from uh, Isaiah 61 in the synagogue in Nazareth. So, so am I answering your question? I mean, it's such a broad question. I, yeah, I don't quite know how to address it. Spiritual a level that the, the balance of the nation was at that time, and, and so it was. Well, again, I think the, the most faithful, obedient Jews at 445 BC would have been those in the province, which we're reading about here. That doesn't mean there aren't others, but I mean, because we're just reading about one of the reasons there's this massive uh, infusion of God's spirit into these people in this great revival. So anyway, Ed, Daniel. So let's, uh, what about Ezra and Nehemiah? If they're, because I think I read that they're, they were born in, in Babylon or That's correct. Russia. So how do they, like especially Ezra, how he got trained into, into the law. Well, as I said, the law was there. I mean, they had access to it. And, uh, you know, Ezra, uh, Ezra had a, some kind of a position in the Persian government. There was a little title used at the beginning of the book of Ezra. I'm not quite sure what that meant. But he had some kind of a title. And so, did, you know, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of Xerxes, the king. So, Yet they are faithful, they're obedient, they're interested. And some of that heritage of these leaders like that, would have been the overflow of Daniel. 
Because remember, Daniel, you remember, well, he was a top official, first in the Babylonian Empire, then when Persia destroyed Babylon, in the Persian Empire. And so that, and he was head of the, the Greek word for that, he's head of the Magi. So he was a top guy. And so that is also one of the reasons why we think that, that, that whole understanding that's in the material in the book of Daniel is passed on to generation. Now, Daniel's influence goes way beyond his death. And uh, that's also one of the reasons why some think that the Magi that show up in Matthew chapter 2 that come to worship Jesus, born him, born king of the Jews, how did they know what to look for? That's the residue of Daniel's influence that continues. Because the Magi would have come from the east from Persia. We, we're almost 100% positive of that. I'm, am I answering your questions? I mean, I'm, these are like seminary type questions. They're really great, but... Another one, it would be, where does the book of Esther fits in... Where's what? The book of Esther. So is Ezra... Esther fits between the first return of the exiles under Shalmaneser and Ezra. Okay, so... 480, about 483 to about 473 B.C. is the book of Esther. Esther covers a 10-year period. So 20, 30 years before... That's right, that's right. Before... Before what we're reading about. <clears throat> there aren't any others, are there? Can I go on here? Now, they're great questions. I mean, they are just fabulous. I have one more. Yeah. Not to, no, I'm not hoping this won't open up a hole. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? But, is no, that the no. oh. but, I mean, is there any similarities to what happens here and what happens in Martin Luther's uh, Reformation where people didn't really have access? readily to the word they had to go to the priest and that sort of thing is that would you say that's well, a similar type of yeah event? the similarity is only at that very point where people hear or themselves read the word of god the result is very similar i mean in that sense every other no it's not similar but in that sense that's right listen you know this, but wherever the Word of God is available and people start reading the Word of God, change is going to happen. Amen. It is going to happen. And uh, every, every major revival in the history of the world is, a, is a, a mixture of prayer, enthusiastic, and emotional embracing of the Word of God. It changes people. And that is every every revival. That is the key. All right. <laughs> Wonderful questions. I have no idea where I am. Um, all right, verse 7. Uh, now, again, all those different uh, titles are the individuals that were mentioned in the previous verses. These are the people who are standing to the left and the right of Levi, uh, of of. Uh, of uh, of Ezra, and then these are additional individuals. They are called Levites at the end of the verse. And Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Now, what is going on here? These Levites are circulating among the thousands of people. Can you envision that? Circulating among them. Helping them to understand the law. 
to interpret and imply and understand the law. While the people stayed in their places. So the people aren't moving around. These Levites are. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave a sense so that the people understood the reading. Now, there is a possibility that part of what they are doing is translating this. Because remember, these are people who have come from Persia. The language of the court of Persia is Aramaic. What Ezra's reading is Hebrew. So it may be that they're not only, uh, let me rephrase that, that part of what they're doing is they're translating some of this, helping them to understand what Ezra just said. And presumably they had a copy too. What Ezra's just saying, I want to make sure you understand that. He's reading Hebrew. person who knows Aramaic can understand a little bit of Hebrew, but they are two different languages. And so it could have even involved some translation as well as because it, the text says ESV is what translation I'm reading from. And they gave the sense. Helping understand this, you're hearing these words. I may need to translate a little bit of it for you. This is what it means. So that you can understand the reading. That is the number one job your pastor is supposed to be doing. In 2020, that is the number one job your pastor is supposed to be doing. Help you understand the word of God. So that you can interpret, and you, uh, I should restructure that whole sentence. Help you understand so that God's spirit can help you apply the word of God. The way, listen to me. The way you approach the Bible is you observe so that you can understand. Then you interpret. Then you apply. Observe, interpretation, application. That's what you're supposed to do. And every time you pick up the Word of God in your devotional time, your reading time, or you're hearing it preached from your pastor, or in this Bible study or other Bible studies you're in, it's, you, 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 you want to understand you understand the words, you want to interpret it properly, and you want to apply it. The most frustrating, I'm going to bear a, a prejudice of mine. The most frustrating thing that I sometimes hear is people sit around, read a passage, and somebody says, what does this mean to you? That's not the right question. There's one meaning. The proper question is, how does this apply to you? In other words, there aren't 17 meanings to this verse. There's one meaning to this verse. How do you apply it to your life? Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not a bunch of people sitting around saying, okay, we have no idea what God meant, so my job is to figure out, well, how do, what does it mean to me? That's what the postmodern person does when they read books. I don't care what the author meant. I just want to know what it means to me. Please don't approach the Bible like that. You want to understand what God meant by this. Then you apply it. There's one meaning many applications. That's an axiom. Take that to the bank. Die for that. There's one meaning to the scriptures. There are many interpret many applications. One interpretation. You know, 
there's Levites not saying, now, okay, people, what does that mean to you? You figure it out. No, this is what God is saying to you. Now, how can we help you apply it if you want to? See the difference? The Levites were like priests. They are. They are priests. The Levites had two jobs, administer and, and, and oversee the sacrificial system and teach the people the word of God. When Joshua set up the conquest, there were, there were Levitical cities. They were called Levitical cities because the Levites didn't get land grants. They were all over Israel, and every Israelite was less than 10 miles from the Levitical city. So they had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to hear the word of God proclaimed to them, read to them, explained to them, and help them apply it. God, this is God's consistent pattern throughout history. I want my word available to people. And I want my word available to people so they can hear it, understand it, and apply it. That was true in 445 B.C. It's true in 2020 A.D. I've, listen, I feel really strongly about this. It's, it's, I've given personally whatever that means to you. Person, I've given my life to this. I believe this. And in, in the decades of my ministry, I've seen, I've seen people transformed, not just from what I do, but I mean people just transformed by the Word of God. It is the Word of God that transforms people. The Holy Spirit of God uses His Word. He doesn't use Oprah Winfrey's newest book. He uses his word to transform people. You do agree with that, don't you? I mean, that's a great place, as my pastor says. That was a great place for an amen, and you missed him. So, okay. Are you with me? On, I mean, do you understand what we did? So this is the intellect. Whoops. Let me go back to, the, go back to our little thing here. This is, this is the intellect. This is the people. Their minds are engaging with the Word of God now. They're seeking to understand what it means. Right? Okay, there were three people that said right. So they're just, But the silence of the rest of you means you're still with us. Okay. Let's look at this. Not as long, but it's kind of interesting. In verse 9 through 12, there's kind of an emotional response. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites. So you have those three. Nehemiah's there, Ezra, who's the one who's reading, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why? Because all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why are they weeping? Well, it could be the emotion of, oh, praise the Lord to hear it. To hear the word of God again resonating in our ears could have been weeping because they, oh my, I've never heard this. I'm not obeying this. I mean, a lot of multiple reasons why people would be weeping, but there's an emotional response to the word of God. Did that ever happen to you? I don't want you to necessarily answer that, but did it ever happen to you? You're reading the word of God or you hear a message and it just stirs your emotions. The tears come to your eyes. That's happened to me a lot. And I'm, I'm sure it has to all of you. That, it is that emotional heart response to the revelation of God. God is speaking to you through his spirit. And it's stirring you. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not a sign of weakness. That's not a sign of, of, of any, any kind of... Uh, of, of I shouldn't be doing it. No, that's a very appropriate response. And so the leaders are up there saying, now listen, this is a day of great joy. 
the Jerusalem secure, the walls built, we're, we're hearing the word of God, it's their joy. Then he said, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, the needy. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. What does that mean? It's, a, it's one of the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's one of those statements. Of, amen. Amen. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. It just really sounds spiritual. <laughs> you know. But So let's unpack it. What does that mean? The joy of the Lord is your strength. I am asking for you to, I mean, Nehemiah is saying this. That it's a, it, I'm sure you've heard that before. This is a commonly quoted verse. God would have joy when Israel responds The delight of the Lord. His presence is with them. We are spiritual. We have a spirit within us. And that spirit responds to the spirit of God. And I think that's where we transcend the earthly things and begin to focus on the heavenly things. Because that's what he wants us to focus on. Mm-hmm. We'll make you strong. I'm sorry? We'll make you strong. Make you strong, okay. Um, good, yeah, these are all good good comments. Um, <clears throat> the man made in God's image is responding to God, mm. and therefore God is delighted The joy of the Lord has two applicational uh, focal points to it. The joy of the Lord, Yahweh's joy being manifested, but also the joy of the Lord that you are experiencing. Amen. That's what, in like Galatians 5.22, one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So it has a, it's called a double entendre. It has a double meaning to it. The joy of the Lord, it's called a genitive, the joy of the Lord. It's a joy that is characteristic of Yahweh because he sees what his people are doing. But it's also the joy of the Lord, objective, your joy, that's sourced in the Lord. That's an appropriate way to understand that. So it's a magnificent phrase capturing so much. But the joy of the Lord is your strength. They have just heard, let's, let's assume that they were reading or hearing read a lot, large parts of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What have they heard? The faithfulness of God to his people. The faithfulness of his God, of God to his people. They heard that. They were reminded of that. And then, we're back in the land. We're where God wants us to be. We've rebuilt his temple. We've reinstituted the sacrificial system. The high priesthood's reinstituted. We're back in the land worshiping the Lord. Oh, the exhilaration and joy of that is our strength. The source of our strength is not, now this has to be understood in the whole context, but the source of our strength is not our armies. It's not our wealth. 
It's not our prestige. It's the Lord. He is the source of our strength. They just heard read how he had been faithful to them generation after generation after generation after generation. And now they're back and all that, the joy of the Lord, both objective and subjective. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's the source of our strength, the content of our strength, the dynamic of our strength. With the Lord, you don't need anything else. Amen. That doesn't mean those other things aren't a part, but in terms of how we look at things, you know? Um, we are going to, I've decided when we're done with Nehemiah, we're going to do some psalms. Okay, I've just decided we're going to do some psalms. But I, I love the, among the many reasons I love to teach the psalms as well as study the psalms on my own is psalms, really, the psalms are about response of people doing life. They really are. How many times in the psalms do you see the psalmist angry at God? Sometimes the psalmist really ticked off at God and tells him so. I mean, really, some of the things, they're hurling accusations at God and saying like, hey, I've been praying to you for months. Where are you? You're silent. And the, uh, the, the conclusion is, because you're silent, you don't care. That's what the psalmist is saying. And then always in the middle of the lament psalm, you see this. Then I remembered. Then I remembered. And it depends on who's writing, when they're writing. Then I remembered. Your faithfulness to me, O oh God, in. And he cites some things. That's where you and I are. We're emotional beings. And sometimes inexplicable things happen to us and we can get angry with God. We can express our frustration with him. And, hey, I've been praying to you for a long time and you're not answering. And again, the implication of that is you don't really care about me. And then it's, things happen, or you read the Word of God, or you get an encouraging note, or you talk to somebody that loves the Lord. Then I remembered. And I just, that is doing life. That is so, that is so like me, and I suspect like you. There are times when you do get kind of ticked off. And you start asking questions of God, and then you remember. And so what you see these people here, there's lots of emotions going on among these thousands of people for lots of different reasons. But Nehemiah says, listen, the joy of the Lord is your strength. A mantra for life is the joy of the Lord, both objective and subjective. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Ready to handle the day, ready to handle this crisis. I... <clears throat> A very dear friend of mine um, is going through a very, a very serious bout with aggressive cancer. It is probably going to take his life. And he said to me Monday, he said, I heard from my oncologist, we're running out of treatments to give you. He had experimental treatment, didn't work. He's been in chemo, it's not working. His blood platelet count is way down. His red blood, that's way down. And then now the point where you know, they can't keep giving him these treatments with the blood count. So he said, I heard my doctor say, maybe, maybe we're out of options. And so he said, Jim, um, I'm compiling a notebook of verses 
The passages of Scripture, I want to keep reading. He said, send me some more. So yesterday, I was in my office, and I sat down, and, and you know, I pulled out some things that were very meaningful to me and my, and, and my wife, and so I just gave him another list, and he just... He wrote back last night and just said thank you. He said, this has added several more pages to my booklet. Now, I don't know if you're processing what I'm saying, but do you, the joy of the Lord is his strength. He's facing an aggressive cancer that's probably going to take his life. I mean, it's going to be a miracle that he, if he survives. I mean it because it's just it's all over his body. But yet I so appreciate his, his maturity, but he's doing the right thing. Are there answers to this? Well, not really. <laughs> you know, you ask, well, why, Lord? God usually doesn't answer that question. Why are you letting things happen? He doesn't answer questions like that. So I, as a little phrase I use, a little sentence, actually, and I shared that with him as well, that as we approach things like this, and just as we approach just doing life, trust in his promises, rest in his character. He's got a lot of promises he's made to you. Trust those. And rest in his character. Is he good? Yeah, he's good. Sometimes when something like aggressive cancer hits, you say, is he good? Yeah, he's good. He's good. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Amen. I'm saying those things because these people who, I'm not sure they heard exactly all those things that I've just been talking about, but they heard all of these things about the faithfulness of God, the holiness of God, the trustworthiness of God, and they're responding emotionally to this. It had probably been years, and in some cases, maybe in their short life, they had never processed this. And so there's emotion, there's weeping. And Nehemiah's reminding them, I understand, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord's your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people down. I don't know what that means. I don't know how they did that, but they calmed all the people down, saying, Be quiet. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And those words are not just what the Levites said. It's what we just read. This whole, they, they're understanding. It's a magnificent portion of Scripture. I mean, it really is. And uh, I, I'm, we're not done with it, but are you with me? Any questions? So just the intellect and emotion, that the intellectually engaging with our minds, seeking to understand what is God saying to me. And sometimes there's an emotional, it's the heart, the mind and the heart engaging the word of God. But then the intended result, as far as God is concerned, is obedience. Then he said, revival begins with a new act of obedience to the Lord. Okay? Yeah, Fred. The joy of the Lord applying today would be that as we study God's word and we know about God, God is pleased with how we it is mm-hmm. absolutely 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 boy this guy's learning isn't he this, this, this flowing out of him that's great that's just wonderful
On the second day, the 9th of October, 445 B.C., the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people. This is another way of saying the clans. Because remember, in ancient Israel, in some ways that's still the way it is in the Middle East today, but you had the families, the clans, and then the tribes. So these would be the clans. With the priests and the Levites came together to Israel, excuse me, to Ezra the scribe, for what purpose? In order to study the words of the law. One of the responses to intellectually engaging the word of God and emotionally involved in responding to the word of God is, I want to study it more. So they are asking these guys, we want to have a Bible study. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious, but that is exactly really what they're doing to study the words of the law. We want more. We want more of this. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is called the Feast of Booths. This was instituted in Leviticus chapter 23. So presumably, they had read this. They had read about this. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in their towns and in Jerusalem. Let me stop here for a minute. What was the Feast of Booths all about? Leviticus 23 is one of the major places where it was instituted. It was a celebration a remembrance of the faithfulness of God during the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. Okay? They, 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 they call it... So, bye, Larry. Thanks, Jim. He told me he was leaving. Bye, Rob. Anybody else want to leave? Okay. Must be getting heavy. People are leaving. Okay. But it was, it was a celebration. They call it uh, Sukkot. That's what they call it in Hebrew, Sukkot. And uh, it is, it's, a, it's a wonderful, the kids love it. And I don't know if they did back then, they love it. The Orthodox Jews still do this today. And so during Sukkot, the Feast of Booze, I've, I've been in Israel during this feast, and among particularly Orthodox Jews, many of them live in apartments and have little porches. So they'll gather, they'll go out into the hills and they'll gather all these 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 leaves and branches, and they'll build this little booth on their on their on their porch, and they live there for seven days. They still celebrate the feast of booths. Well, okay, what's happening here? You have the leaders of the clans having a Bible study with Ezra and the guys, and they come across Leviticus twenty three and say, "Well, we haven't done this. We've never done this, because in, in many cases they would never have done this." And so they're hearing the word of God. They're hearing about this. So what did they do? Verse 15. They proclaimed and published it in all the towns of Jerusalem. Go out into the hills, bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booze as it is written. We're obeying what is written in the word of God. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves. Booze, you know, don't think of a booth at a carnival or a festival or the, the Nebraska State Fair. It's like a, a little, I don't know what word would you use, like a little lean-to type thing made of branches. 
each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze. That's a very important, from the captivity. These are the exiles that are now back in the land, about 50,000 of them, and lived in the booze. For from the days of Yeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read that he would presumably be Ezra, read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly uh, gathering together for corporate worship according to, uh, according to the rule, meaning Leviticus 23. So, again, what do you see? You have intellect engaging with your mind God's word, a responsive emotion, and then obedience. In this, it's a specific issue. They had not kept the Feast of Booze. They read about it. We haven't done this. we got to do it. So they obey. And it's just, it's a magnificent illustration and demonstration of our response to God's word. It still is that fundamental question. I observe and I understand. I interpret and I apply. Question, what does God want me to do with this? What does God want me to do? What, what transformational change? What, what does he want me to do here? And so it's not a lackadaisical, complacent, apathetic. It is an engaging with God's word, with your mind, sometimes emotional responses, but with obedience. That's why it is the word of God that transforms people. What, what, what does James say? James says in his epistle, you have two choices to the word of God responding to it. It's like a mirror. In the morning, you look into a mirror and you see your unshaven, your teeth isn't brushed, your hair's a mess, and you look at it and say, well, I look okay, and you walk out the door. That's probably not what you're going to do. You look at the mirror and you see, I'm an absolute mess. You get in the shower, you shave, you comb your hair, and all the other things you do, and you walk out the door. Why? Because that mirror pointed out all that's wrong. James says the word of God's like that. It's like a mirror. And you have a choice. Are you going to deal with the things that the word of God wants you to deal with? Or are you going to pretend they're not there and walk out the door? And see, that's the power of, and I, I, you know, I'm 72 years old. I've walked with the Lord since 1972, and I'm still struggling with doing this stuff. Obeying what God wants me to do. Because every time I read the word of God, there's something else that God is stirring in my soul. Here's some things, Jim, you still you still need to deal with these things. And I'm married to a woman who also helps remind me of the things that I need to be doing. I have a nickname for one of our neighbors, and uh, he's just kind of a really hard-to-get-along-with guy. And uh, I always, if I'm home and, and so on, uh, Peggy does the dishes, and you know, today you wash them in the dishwasher, put them in the dishwasher. You just put them in the dishwasher. So I help her put them in the dishwasher, and then there are other things like some of the pots and things she washes. So I dry them and stand in there, and I, I use this nickname, and she, this is what she said to me Honey, he's our neighbor. 
just a declarative sentence. Honey, he's our neighbor. What was she really saying to me? Stop using that nickname. That's not nice. He's our neighbor. So, you know, I, I get under the table with conviction and feel terrible. So I'm being a little facetious, but your help me also can help you stay on track. Well, I saw people closing their Bibles, and so I, I guess I'm done. Is, is that the body language I should read? Uh, chapter 8, it's a great chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because of what we see happening there is what we should see happening today. Next week, I want to deal with chapter 9. We are starting to get near the end of the book, but chapter 9 is the people renew their covenant with God. They renew their covenant commitment to God. It's a great chapter. It's a bit longer. There's a lot of history in it, but it also is a great chapter. So, All right? One more question. No. Before? Before, under Zerubbabel. That was, we, see, we don't deal with that in Nehemiah. In the beginning chapters of the Did book of Ezra. Yeah. The what? Ezra was involved in that. Actually, no. Uh, the, 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 the man who is responsible for rebuilding the temple is a man named Zerubbabel. Not a really well known name, but Zerubbabel is the, they, by the time that Nehemiah chapter 8, the temple is rebuilt. And that's, under, that's the very beginning of the book of Ezra, the book that precedes Nehemiah here in the Old Testament. No, the temple's rebuilt. But does that answer your question? Lord, we thank you for chapter 8 in the book of Nehemiah. It is a marvelous chapter, and it's so relevant to us even today because it is the consistent way throughout the Bible. I mentioned the book of James and Paul and, and, and many others of how we respond to the Word of God. We read it. We want to understand it. Our mind is engaged. There's often emotional response to it, but the intended result is always obedience. And Lord, it isn't a sort of Damocles hammering us into submission kind of obedience. It's a loving obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's a, it's a response of love and adoration because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we just come to understand as we walk with you daily, intimately, day by day, that we, we, we love you because of all you've done for us. And we desire to walk with you in obedience. You are a creator. You're our redeemer. You know what's best for us. You're not uh, some charlatan. You're not, a, you're not a, a fair-weather friend. You're the intimate, loving Heavenly Father who wants us, your children, to walk with you to love you, to respond to you in obedience. And it is through your word that you communicate these tremendous, tremendous words of encouragement, challenge, to transform us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for these men, their willingness to meet and to hear from the word of God. Give them the joy of the Lord, which is their strength, as they go through the rest of this day in Christ's name. Amen. amen. See you next week.